You know, the Library of Congress does a lot of things. The Copyright Office in the Library of Congress sets standards for intellectual property all around the world. The Map Division of the Library of Congress is one of the best in the world. It's true that the whole cataloging area in LC sets a standard for certainly the English-speaking world and well beyond. The whole resource called Thomas, named after our very own TJ, enables people to understand legislation and its history and to have access to bills that are being passed in very recent memory. In fact, members of the U.S. Congress are the heaviest users of the Thomas resource. The Conservation and Preservation and Testing Department does cutting-edge research in the conservation and preservation of materials. The Library of Congress does many things. Some of them are pretty flashy. When heads of state are brought in to see the treasures of the nation, they're brought in to the Library of Congress. And it's good and fitting that this should be so. But it's also true that one of the things that I, as a person deeply involved in the world of books and reading and libraries, am most proud of for what the Library of Congress does is their service to the blind and physically handicapped. And this is something I think that escapes the notice of most citizens. It's not about rare maps. It's not about unique copies of Mesoamerican books, pre-Columbian manuscripts. It's not the stuff that grabs the headlines but it's the kind of thing that a great library can and should, and I would argue must do. It's the kind of thing that should make us all proud to be part of the Federal Library. The director of the National Library Service for the Blind and Physical Handicap is our speaker today. Before taking this position, Karen Kenninger served as regional librarian for the Iowa Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped from 2000 to 2008, and as director of the Iowa Department for the Blind from 2008 to 2012. In this capacity, she managed the statewide library program, the Machine Lending Agency, Instructional Materials Center, Braille Production, and Audio Production Units. Kenninger's initiatives included the planning and implementation of a new in-house digital recording program with a state-of-the-art recording studio and a core of volunteers to expand and transform the state's audio production program. She served on the digital long-term planning group established by the National Library Service at LC in 2001 to guide the planning for the now successfully completed digital book talking book transition and on the successor Digital Transition Advisory Committee. In other words, she's been a player in the field for a very long time. 
she led the state of Iowa from the transition from analog digital uh, talking books to, to digital talking books and players. And she was instrumental in securing funds to do so. She herself is a daily user of the full range of information technologies for the blind and visually impaired, including Web Braille, which she just showed me what that really is, digital talking book machines and books, and online downloaded services. Throughout her career, she has established and maintained effective working relationships with a broad range of individuals and organizations at the national, state, and local levels, galvanizing support for a constituency that is consistently underheard, unrecognized, and she has won support again and again for them. No wonder then that she was elected in 2012 president of the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind. And from 2002 to 2008, she served as the chair of the Consortium of User Libraries. We have before us today a woman who is a great leader in her field and someone who has been a powerful advocate, a technological innovator, and a woman who has brought great warmth to her administrative prowess. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today Karen Kenninger. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. <clears throat> Excuse me, one moment while I attach Jimmy to something solid. <laughs> he is not trustworthy. <laughs> okay, Jimmy, sit. 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 Down. Come on. Oh, there you go. Okay. It is a real pleasure to be here this evening and to talk to you about something that is very, very close to my heart. Slide two, Jake, H5. That's Jake. Is that picture up? Slide three. Wait a minute. Okay, I'm jumping around. Hang on. I got creepy. Okay. That's Jake. He's my grandson. He um, he came to me at Christmas time with a book in his hand, and he said, he said, Nana, read me this book. I said, Oh, honey. Um, Nana can't read the book. Let's look at the pictures. You tell me what the picture. No, no, Nana, read me the book. Well, um, maybe we could get a different book. No, read me this book. He's five. He's insistent. <laughs> and then he has a brainstorm. I know, he says. I'll be right back. And he goes and he gets Jimmy. He's been told that Jimmy helps Nana see. <laughs> <laughs> He sits him down in front of me and he says, Now you can read it. <laughs> Jimmy's not much of a reader, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> you'll, you'll hear a little bit of static here. My, top, my computer is reading the screen aloud to me so that I'm sure I know which side I'm on, just so that you're not distracted by that. I am an avid reader. I've been reading since I was, well, since before kindergarten, and I've been reading Braille since I was seven. 
I love to read. It is one of the most important things in my life. <clears throat> also one of the more frustrating since I can't access everything that's out there. But it's my job as the director of the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped to make sure that the people who are, like me, unable to read standard print because of visual or physical disabilities, to make sure that they have material to read because it is so important. There are two ways that a person who can't see generally can read these days. One of them is tactily, that is using your fingers to feel something. And the other way is to listen to somebody read it out loud. I'm going to talk today about those two approaches. I'm going to talk a, a little bit about the history of those two approaches to reading. Um, hang on just a minute. Um, blind people were not able to read anything up until the end of the 18th century. There was no assumption that they would be having a need to read, that they would have a way to read, or anything of the sort. But in um, 18, 1786, a school was founded in Paris for blind people. It was the first school in Europe for blind people. And a person named Valentin, I don't know how to say his name, H-A-U-Y, I'm not good at French. Um, but he founded the school, and then he had to figure out a way that he could have texts for people to read. So he thought, well, the way to do it would be to emboss print on a page. And he took made copper plate printing and embossed the print on the page, and then he had people read it with their fingers. Um, he used ordinary Roman type and was cast in reverse and then pressed against the back side of the paper so that it would emboss. And that's, that's what they had for about 30 years and then they got another system there that was a little bit easier to read, or so they thought, but it was still based on Roman type. So about 50 years later, in 1832, um, the Royal Scottish Society of of arts announced a competition for the best alphabet and method for print for blind people. It was the first of several competitions during the 19th century and the response was quite strong. Everybody had a better idea. Um, people from all walks of life came up with ways that blind people could read. Primarily there were three different sorts of things that they proposed. One was raised type, sort of like what we had seen already. Um, one was another system that would use some kind of symbol that wasn't really print, but it was raised lines and circles and squiggles that were intended to represent letters. And the third were dot systems that we used combinations of dots. Now the person that won the prize actually in that particular competition was one who, pro who proposed something that was a um, raised print, ro raised Roman letters. And I think it's significant to be aware that these are primarily people who are sighted, who are coming up with good ideas for people who are blind. Now, they're not, they don't have the same experience that the blind people do. 
and sometimes their better ideas sort of miss the mark. Uh, and I think that's a lot of the case in this instance that for a long time it was preferred that the print be raised and the part of the thinking of that was that well the teachers wouldn't have to learn anything new because they could read the print that was raised on the paper <laughs> and the, the students well they could figure it out but quite honestly it's hard to read um, the symbols uh, the kind of symbols that use that were the another that other system excuse me I'm trying to figure out how to do this without touching the tab. there we go um, well, the kinds of symbols like this that were used as another way of doing it, those are easier to read. This is moon type and it was developed by one William Moon um, <clears throat> and it was intended as an alternative way of reading. It has to be pressed because it's embossed on paper. Um, you can still find moon type in England today I think and we have a sample of it which I will show you later. Um, this is a page from the book of Genesis. Now, if you have very few things to read, and you are a blind person who must either be spiritually lacking or spiritually overabundant, and they were never quite sure which, you should have the Bible. So the Bible was uh, the first thing that, and the most ubiquitous thing that was done in these, these alternative formats. And once they got done, they had the Bible, then they went to, to real classics. But because it was very, you know, there wasn't very many of them, they were particular about what they did, and religion seemed to be a major factor there. Um, there are two major disadvantages to these raised print systems, or these raised um, moon type type systems and the first one is that it really is hard to read raised print there's a lot of detail which you can observe with your eye very quickly very readily observe but it, your the sensitivity in even very highly sensitized fingers is not as good as your eye for obvious reasons and so it's hard when there are a lot of details to the letters it's hard to tell them apart um, and the second disadvantage is that you can't write it. They all have to be pressed. And so there's not a way for the blind reader to write. At least not to write something they can read back. I mean, you could write it you know, freehand and somebody else could read it to you, but, but you couldn't write it. So I'm sure you've all heard of Lewis Braille. Lewis Braille was a teenager when he heard about a system of military was using for code called night writing and they're using it to send messages in the dark. They were using a dot system and Louis Braille took that dot idea and he created a complete reading system using a six dot cell that looks like that. Um, this, this six dot Braille cell has standard spacing and is is um, actually quite easy to read with sensitized fingers. The spacing is the same um, regardless. It's not proportional. The dots are used in different combinations and in relative positions to one another the, um, so that you can have a complete reading system. He, he developed it in France and it is something that um, looks like 
So he completed his system in 1829, he published, but people weren't paying much attention. I, you, I told you that that contest was in 1832. Um, they weren't paying any attention to Louis Braille at all, and especially in the English-speaking world. He was French, after all. Um, the English were still sti sticking to print, a raised print. So in... Um, 1832, some schools for the blind started to be built in the United States. Philadelphia and Boston were a couple of the earliest ones. And in Philadelphia, a fellow decided that he would make a new way of, of making race prints. His name was Jacob Snyder. And what he did was to actually engrave the print on the page so that you could press the page down and um, he got a pretty clean result from it. It was kind of like handwriting. It's not what's up there right now. And that um, gave you a very clean, easy, easier to read system, but for some reason it didn't take hold either. And in fact, what happened was that Samuel Gridley Howe, who, who started the Perkins School for the Blind, had his own better idea. And so he created Boston line type, which is what you have a sample of here. Um, it was compact and it had fewer confusing flourishes, so he figured it was a better idea than what those Europeans were doing. Um, and then he needed somebody to create a press to make Boston line type for the Perkins School for the Blind, and so he hired a pressman to do that, and they used this press till 1881, and then they made a better press. So they were using Boston line type for quite a long time. Well, meanwhile, you know, in America we have lots of better ideas. So meanwhile, <laughs> um, but over in France, Louis Braille was also having a better idea, and he was still working on it, and he created a music system. Now you think of music as staffs and, um, you know, little... I don't know, I don't read print music, but lines and, and circles and flags and whatnot. Anyway, Louis Braille's Braille music doesn't look like that. This is a piano score. Um, it looks like Braille, but it does have all of the, the properties of regular print music. Everything that's in a regular print music score is translated into a something in the Braille score that makes it exactly comparable. So here you've got the print score and the braille score. And you can tell where the measures are in the, in the braille because there's spaces between them, but other than that it looks like braille. Which it is. It's braille. <laughs> um, now jump forward to 1860 and I'm from the Midwest so I'm kind of pleased about this. But, Somebody from, from Missouri, the Missouri School for the Blind, um, went to Europe and they saw Braille. And they said, oh, this is cool. I think we'll bring this back to Missouri. So they were starting the school, Missouri School for the Blind and so they brought Braille back to Missouri. And they instituted Braille as the um, system of choice in Missouri. 
So now we've got regular Braille. This is the Louis Braille kind of Braille in Missouri, as the English had perfected it. And we have Boston line type in Boston, for people who are blind in Boston. We are all one country, but we forgot that when it came to this. Uh, in New York, in the meantime, somebody had yet another better idea. They created what they called New York Point. New York Point was a new system of dots that was intended to improve on the Braille system. They said, okay, dots, we get that, dots work, but let's have a proportional font. Okay, so, and let's, let's you know, Braille is bulky and it takes up a lot of room, and, and so why don't we have something that takes up less room on the page has a proportional font, effectively, so that the I and the W don't take up the same amount of space, like in print. And we'll have, this will just be a better system all the way around. So in New York, you've got New York Point. They adopted that in 1871, officially. In Boston, you've still got Boston line type. And in Missouri, you've got Braille. But in Boston, in about 1878, one of their teachers said, you know what, I think maybe this Braille thing has got a point, but I don't like the systems we've got, so let me make a new one. <laughs> so he made a new Braille system using the six-dot cells, again, like Louis Braille did, but he said, you know, it makes a lot more sense if the most commonly used numbers, letters, have the fewest dots, and you can write it faster. So he changed all the dots around. <laughs> and then in 1890, at the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, they introduced American Braille. So we've got modified Braille and American Braille and New York Point and Boston Line Type and English Braille. He introduced this, this new version of Braille. And it kind of followed the same thing as this, this Perkins guy, except it was a little different system as well. Um, his system looked like that. It looks like Braille. If you don't know Braille, you can't tell the difference. Um, now, in 1893, mechanical devices were developed to actually write Braille because before you, before 1893, basically you took a, a metal frame and you took a stylus and you punched the holes in the back of the paper. But now we've got a, at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, we have, we display for the first time this device. Now this device is focused on the six dot braille cell. This has an impact because remember the um, New York point is not the six dot cell, it's a different system so you'd need a slightly different, different device. So there's a braille writer and the stereotype maker which they then began to use. Um, but the, not to be left out, the New York, port, New York point people said, oh, 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 quick, we have to make something, we'll call it the kaleidograph. It'll be a New York point device. It can write New York Point. So, so um, meanwhile, we've got, we've got these mechanical devices now that can write the Braille. We've also got your slate and stylus that can poke holes in paper one hole at a time. And now we've got ways of writing Braille plus the presses. So, meanwhile, in Britain, the British had undergone a fairly straightforward development of Braille. They picked the six-dot system early and stuck with it. That door opens, Jimmy. Um, 
Now there are 69 different combinations of dots that you can get out of a six dot cell. So use 26 of them for the alphabet and another dozen or so for punctuation and you've got about 30 or so that you haven't used yet. Plus you can put two cells together next to each other and have other kinds of combinations. So um, these are called contractions. Braille is very bulky. Excuse me. Jimmy, sit down. He's hungry. <laughs> you probably are hungry too. <laughs> um, these contractions make Braille smaller or shorter so that you can get more on a page and it takes up less room. The Brits came up with a three-level system for Braille, knowing that some people were going to be confused by contractions and some people were going to want more contractions. They came up with three different kinds of Braille. They called it Braille Grade 1, Grade 2, and Grade 3. Now, this is an example of those three things. Mother and father have very little knowledge of Braille. That is a kind of constructed sentence because it's pretty heavy on contractions. But you can see, I hope, on this slide that the top line is all written out one letter for one letter. The second one is much shorter because of it's using the contractions. And the third one is actually the grade three, which not only uses more contractions, but it also uses um, spacing, more uh, spacing so that, or less spacing actually. So if you have the word mother, there's not anything that follows mother, and so you can put and right next to it and not have a space between, um, that kind of thing. And then father follows right after that because you can tell pretty readily that says mother and father because there's not a word called mother and, and um, that sort of thing. So, so it takes out a lot of the spacing and uses a lot more um, relative, re relational kinds of symbols in order to make, make this Braille. So there's about 200 contractions in grade 2 Braille and there's about 1,000 contractions in grade 3 Braille. Now grade 2 Braille, which is a contracted Braille that the British use, was the standard that they used for their books. There wasn't anybody in the United States except the Missourians who could read it. <laughs> you show me Missouri. Um, so in the United States, we still have these five systems up till 1932. Except they knew this was a problem because people sometimes moved from Boston to New York. <laughs> and then they said, well, what are we going to do now? So they got together a committee. And the committee was tasked with the job of yet another system of Braille. <laughs> Now this system, they wanted to make everybody happy. And so they wanted to take the best of everything available. So they said, New York Point has its, has its advantages and six dot braille has its advantages, so let's make a system that combines the two. We'll make a nine dot braille cell. <laughs> we'll make it proportional. And by golly, this will be the best thing since sliced bread. Um, I'm happy to say that never took off. <laughs> They called it standard braille. It never happened. Because in the meantime, what happened after 150 years of trying to figure out what blind people needed was something that is called the Pratt-Smoot Act, 
Now, the Pratt-Smoot Act is the act that established the Books for the Blind program at the Library of Congress. So for the first time ever, we have a national program, not just these schools for the blind in various states, but in fact the national program with national scope, and they needed to do only one thing. They said, you know, we are not going to make five different kinds of Braille. We're going to do one, and we're going to pick one, and the one they picked, interestingly enough, was British Braille. They threw out all the American cousins, and they picked the British system with some modifications because, you know, we can't have anything whole cloth from somewhere else. <laughs> they thought that some of the contractions were just too confusing, so they took them out. And the Brits, in their wisdom, don't believe, I'm not, I don't, the British Braille people, they don't believe in capital letters. They say, you know, capital signs, they're just a waste of space. Capital in Braille means it takes up an extra cell, and there's one dot that's in front of the letter, and it says capital. I said, ah, wasted space, take them out. The Americans said, we believe in capitals. <laughs> so they put them back. <laughs> so we now have established as the standard in the United States the British Braille system with capitals returned and a few of the signs taken out. This was a, a boon for Braille readers because now, as things are, are made across the country, people can read them whether they live in Boston or New York or Missouri. So since that time, the, the Library of Congress, the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, is what it's called now, it's called the Books for the Blind Program, has been producing books in this kind of Braille, standard uh, English Braille. And we've got about 20,000 titles or so. Um, controversy over how Braille should be done lasted 150 years and counting, because although we've been established for about 80 years in, on this system, we are about to change. Uh, we're going to be changing to what's called Unified English Braille, which is now being used in Australia and England and other places. And the reason for this next change actually does make sense. The reason for it is that we have what we now are happy to call electronic Braille, which can be translated back and forth to print quite readily and in order to have that translation not screw everything up, they needed to make some changes. So now if a child is writing their essay in Braille on their electronic device in their classroom, they can back translate it and their sighted teacher can read it in print and it won't be a mess. So this is a, a, a very positive thing. So that's one way that a blind person can read is with Braille. Um, today the standard English Braille six dot system. The other option that a blind person or a person with a disability who can't handle a book has for reading is to listen, to go back to that you know, oral tradition and listen to a book. A lot of the people who we serve through our library system are older when they lose their vision. They, they're not children and able to learn Braille readily. And oftentimes, although they could learn Braille, it takes a big effort. It's sort of like trying to learn Russian when you're 50. It's not that easy. So a lot of them don't end up doing it. So what we have is the talking book. The talking book was real rev really revolutionary in its 1934 time, which is 80 years ago. At that time, we had the, the records had been developed, and we had the 78 records, I think, 
Um, my grandmother had albums of them, they're heavy, heavy things. And they would play about two to three minutes on a side and they'd practically spin off the turntable. Um, and the Library of Congress said we could make talking books. We could do that, but we can't do these little 78 records because, holy cow, can you imagine, you know, 14 hours on those things? <laughs> so they developed the long playing record. Now, I am old enough to remember the albums, the vinyl albums that they put out with songs on them, but before that, I had talking books that were on 33 and 3rd long playing records. Long playing meant 20 minutes um, on a side, and they were developed um, along with the talking book machine, which is this big clunky um, thing with a really fabulous speaker in it, actually. Um, and so you could get, get your book 20 minutes to a side meant 40 minutes to a record. And if an average book is about 12 hours long, uh, you're talking about maybe 16 records, uh, those big heavy platters, uh, which were put into black, black boxes and shipped across the country by the post office. So NLS was always, is always looking for new ways of doing. So they said, okay, let's see if we can't make the records smaller and make them go slower. Now, the, the music industry never went to the slower, smaller records, but we did, and we went to a 10-inch record, and first it went at um, half, or, yes, half the speed, which would have been 16 and two-thirds, and then we said, well, you know, maybe we could do it half again. So we got down to eight and a third RPMs for those as the needles got better and the, the record players got better. Um, and that meant you could get an hour and a half on a side. Now that's a big improvement. It means a lot fewer records, a lot less stuff to haul around. Um, you can also do a lot more damage with a quick scratch, I'll point out. <laughs> now during the early years of the Talking Book program, there were a lot of people, high profile people, who were asked and were willing to actually do um, some narrating for the Talking Book program. What I have here, I'm gonna give you just a little sample of it are some of those early recordings that we have. I'm, they've been digitized, so this is not authentic exactly, but you get the idea anyway. Let's see if this is on. So there's her. Here's Eleanor. That's not Harry Truman, but he's coming.
So there's there's Harry. Oh, there's one I want to show you. Harry read it. This house is in the village, folks. He will not see me stopping here to watch his wood fill up the snow. My little horse can sing it queer to stop it out of farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his hands about the shake to ask if there is some said. The only other sounds the sweet of easy wind down his place. What a lovely, dark and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. So there's Robert Frost. <laughs> As time went on, we improved what we had. We are always improving what we have, and we moved to cassettes. Cassettes were a hot deal in the 1970s. <laughs> and we were able to put um, six hours of reading on one cassette. So now we've gone from that great stack of records to maybe two cassettes for an entire 12-hour book. This is a major improvement. The, the copyright law that NLS operates under requires us to provide our material in a specialized format. And so when we did cassettes, we specialized the format by slowing it down to half speed so a standard cassette was one and seven eighths inches per second and we did 15 sixteenths and also spreading out the tracks in such a way that if you put it in a stereo what you would hear is two um, jabbering sounds all together <laughs> you'd get two tracks that weren't synced and they would go twice as fast as they should so it didn't do you any good so that was how we had a specialized format um, that system was in place pretty much for the next 30 years, and in the last, um, the last eight to ten years, we developed the digital talking book system, which is what I was playing with here a second ago. And I think this next slide is it. Oh, those are the cassettes, and there's the digital talking book machine. So this is. Um, this is the system that we have now. It's called the Digital Talking Book Machine. And we ha it has cartridges that are easy to use and easy to handle. This was very carefully developed by my predecessor and his staff. And it is, it is a really fine piece of engineering. Now you'll notice throughout all of these books and everything that you will see here is there's no fancy covers. There's no lovely illumination. There's no gold leaf. There's no marginalia. There's no nothing to look at with a microscope except dust bunnies maybe. <laughs> um, because they, well, they didn't do that. I've never seen a braille book or a talking book that looked really cool. But that's okay because it's the contents that we were concerned about. The mailers on the talking book machines or for the talking books, not the machines, started out big, heavy black boxes. They're now down to, to lightweight little plastic boxes. They all look the same, nothing too special about them. But they're very practical because the post office carries all of our stuff back and forth, and so it's important that they be 
postal service sturdy, and that is, takes some doing, as you might guess. Um, so, you know, Braille and talking books haven't really been considered to be seriously as rare books. But if rare means that there aren't very many of them and that they're very special, then I submit they qualify, at least some of the older ones. Um, they bring blind people access to the treasures of literature, to information, and, and in a lot of cases to things that because you can't see them, you can't get at otherwise except in the written, the wor written word. So if you know, I can't resist this, but if you know anybody who doesn't, who can't read anymore because of age-related disability or whatever, or um, check out our website because we are always looking for new people to serve. We are a very well hidden resource as, as Michael mentioned earlier. So um, that's the end of my formal presentation. I have some, some items up here on the table which you are welcome to handle gently. Um, gently because they're kind of falling apart, um, that they'll give you a feel for, no pun intended, the types of material that, um, that I've been talking about. You can touch them and see how much you could read of that raised print. And at this point, I would also entertain any questions. And if you have a question, somebody else will have to call on you because I'm not going to see you wave your hand in the air. <laughs> Thank you very much. to moderate your questions as it were. Thank you. Hey, hey you. <laughs> All right. So, so please. You alluded in discussion of the cassettes to the copyright restrictions that oblige you to distribute materials under what sound like sort of quasi-proprietary formats. Yes. Um, could you just give a, a, a brief sort of history of that law? And I'm also curious from a sort of, I guess, a curatorial perspective, especially in terms of the digital talking books, does that pose any concerns for sort of long-term accessibility to these media if the devices are, are um, not the average, not the sort of most commonly available device one might use? To your first question, the copyright law that we operate under, we call it the Chafee Amendment. It was enacted in 1996. Before 96, everything that we transcribed into Braille or talking book had to be, we had to get permission from the publisher, written permission and file that and all that. Um, it, since 1996, we have been able to transcribe in a specialized format anything that has a U.S. copyright if it's not music or dramatic work, and the law allows us to do that. Um, to your second question about the specialized format, the, um, the digital talking books are very carefully encrypted, and they are very specialized, and they do require very specialized playback equipment, and the reason for that is to be in sync with the copyright law. We maintain at the Library of Congress and, um, the open wave files that were used to create them so that if they needed to be brought forward to a different format, they could be quite readily. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. David? Well, first, thank you for explaining the mystery that's bothered me for many, many decades. What 16 and 2 thirds was on our record there. <laughs> 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 the, uh, the question, are there major archival not in libraries in this country, except we have the archival collection of all of our materials. Um, the Perkins Library does have uh, 
quite a collection of some of the older things. I don't know, I have not actually walked through that, so I'm not sure how much. Um, there are a couple of places that do. Perkins is probably the most well-known. The American Printing House for the Blind, which is in Louisville, also does have a museum, and one of the items that I have here actually is from their collection. They do have a pretty good collection as well. It would be a great collecting interest. Absolutely. James? Um, I want to echo the, the appreciation. This was a, a fun talk. I learned a lot of interesting things. Um, but I'm very curious about the comment you made earlier about rarity. Um, and you, when you were talking about rarity, you kind of addressed the concern of scarcity, right? So some of these mm -hmm. books are very scarce, and so that makes them rare. Um, but there's another sense of rarity that I'm very interested in with books, and that means rarefied, or we pay special attention to, or having special features. Um, and not being able to read Braille books, um, I'm curious, and this might be a very basic question, but I'm curious if they can have special features, if there's like a nicer paper, if there's like a good printer who might have done a certain book, or the, the book feels good in the hand, or there's some aspects of the book which can distinguish uh, one production from another as, as kind of a rarefied special book. Not really. Um, <laughs> not really. They've never. They've not ever put any effort into that that I've seen. Okay. How many titles have been achieved in the various formats, and what seems to be the way the blind public is going in terms of choice of format? Speaking about titles, I can tell you that the NLS collection has about 20,000 Braille titles and about 80,000 audio titles. Um, there are others that are created around the country. Our network of, we work with a network of about 56 regional libraries and another 30 or so sub-regional libraries. Um, and they, some of them have recording programs or Braille programs, so they create their own things. So we are not the only source. Um, but let me see, your second question, I'm sorry. I, just escaped me. What was it? Going forward. Oh, preference format. For the last forty years or so, Braille has been um, not not been emphasized in schools for blind kids, and it's got to do with the fact that they've been going to public schools instead of specialized schools, and their teachers don't know Braille, and there aren't enough teachers to teach them the Braille, and it's kind of a complicated thing. But there is a resurgence of Braille and the recognition that Braille is the literacy medium, just like print is your literacy medium. Um, it is not, ta uh, listening to something is not comparable to reading it for a blind person any more than it is for you. And it's, it's a very pleasant experience, but it's not what we would consider literacy. And um, there's been a, a real resurgence of understanding of the need for more um, Braille, particularly for working age people, because it is clear, clearly linked to employment, employability and that sort of thing. Um, but people who are older, people who are losing their vision, and we have a lot of this um, in, in retirement, are generally unlikely to learn Braille, so they're going to be using the talking books. And about, frankly, 90 to 95 percent of the people we serve use talking books. Uh, I'm curious if there's been kind of a parallel development with uh, creating ebooks online, um, with websites like Gutenberg.org that put up open source books. And because you have keyboard accessories that uh, can translate text into Braille, 
They are usable, um, and there is a sort of an elite group of blind people who can afford the the translation, the the, braille, the software. I have an example here of what I will call a braille e-reader. Um, it has a refreshable braille display on it, and they're quite expensive. Um, but if you have one, you can use them to read a lot of the a lot of things online. You can read web pages. You can do a lot of things like that. My dream, my goal, um, is to make it possible for all of our Braille readers to have e-readers, e Braille e-readers, so that they'll all have those options. But they're quite expensive right now, and we're trying to find a new technology that would be less expensive and that we would therefore be able to afford to provide. Right now, each cell, um, each six-dot cell on the refreshable Braille display costs between 60 and 80 bucks. So if you got a, a line of 40 of them, which is about the width of a standard braille paper, um, you've got a lot of money invested in it, thousands of dollars, and, and that's been a real problem that we're trying to solve. How do you select which books um, get converted into braille and talking about formats? We have a collection development section at the National Library Service, and their job is basically to do that. We are aiming for a general public library collection, um, one that would have as many of the most popular things as we can manage, but also have a good solid list of, of classics and that sort of thing. So that's how we, we, and we also take patron recommendations. But we have, um, in general terms, we would request that there would be at least three positive reviews in the media and that we try to balance the collection. We do have a emphasis on disability-related you know, um, material, however, because of who we are. I would warmly recommend that you translate the Oxford Companion to the book in Braille. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, I was wondering, for people who are doing specialized uh, research, is are there services where you can submit a book and have it translated into Braille? There are. Um, it depends on whether you've got any money <laughs> or whether you've got connections with the right regional library. I came from Iowa, and in Iowa we would do that for people because we had a cadre of volunteers who would do it, um, but that's not ubiquitous across the country. Our law requires that a person with a reading disability get a physician to declare it organically based. I'm not sure anybody really knows what that means. <laughs> uh, it was designed in the 70s. That is what our law says, and so that's how we deal with that, which generally means that people with dyslexia, for the most part, are not taking advantage of our services. We don't specifically allow it, you know, if they get a doctor to sign off, then we'll serve them. Uh, are Braille books sold? Uh, does a person assemble uh, a library that they own? There are a few people who do, and there are a few places that you can buy them from. 
Um, I don't know too many people that do that, though, because they take up an awful lot of room. A, a standard, like a 200-page book, would be about three volumes, about two and a half inches thick each. So you're talking about, let's see, about seven and a half, eight inches shel shelf space for one, one book, one fairly small book. So. Are these commercial Um, there, there aren't any any actual commercial organizations doing it. The ones that do it are nonprofits, who are focused on this kind of work. So they have, they're considered author or uh, authorized entities, and they're able to do it without going to the publishers. The one caveat there is music. We do have to check with the publishers on music, and dramatic works. Please, picture books. Has anything been done with picture books? Yeah, um, what we generally do with picture books is to interleaf braille in the book, like take the binding off and then put braille in between the pages so that I could put, if I'd had the right book, I could have sat down with Jake and read him his book if it had braille in it. <laughs> um, and we, we do some of that. I had I have quite a library of those actually because I used them when I was raising my kids. Please, sir. I have a question regarding the unified English Braille. Does the Library of Congress have a timetable for when new transcriptions will be in We're hoping to implement in, in January of 16. But the transcription, uh, there, there's a lot of work that has to be done with regard to the training and certification programs before we can actually require that. And we're in charge of those too, so <laughs> we're hoping. We actually have a contractor doing that, and we're hoping that that, that can get be in place by then. That meaning, we will be switching our stuff to UEB. Um, other people will be doing whatever other people are doing. We don't control it; we just recommend it. How different is the Unified English Braille? It's really not very different. They've taken out some of the contractions. Um, and the punctuation is changed. In Braille, the current Braille, for example, a, a, a parenthesis, opening and closing parens look the same. There's no change, no difference in them. And UEB will differentiate between an opening and a closing parenthesis, and it gives you options for brackets and braces and things that Braille didn't have before. I, the first time I met Karen, I told her the story. Um, but now I feel compelled to share it with you. When I was a little boy, on a dark and stormy night, I think it was 1967, my mother got into her Studebaker in the eye of the, in the teeth of a storm, and she went out to um, make her regular Thursday evening appointment. But the weather was so terrible that she smashed her car and completely totaled it into what my father, for the rest of his life, referred to as that ambulatory tree. <laughs> when the police officer came and said, and rescued my mother out of the car, because she was trapped inside, no collapsible steering wheels in those days, and said, hey lady, what the hell are you doing here on a night like this? Where the hell were you going? And my mother said, 
I was on my way to my Braille lesson, and so she was. Because my childhood was filled with my trying to learn Braille so that she could spend her leisure hours, since she only had five children, making books for the blind. With that accident, I'm sorry to say, she stopped her Thursday night and there was no more Braille in the Suarez household. I'm delighted to see how well the technology has progressed and in what fine hands the leadership of the NLS is. Please join me in thanking Captain.